I love Christmas time. It's a special time of year. I enjoy all the celebration. And it is a time to look specifically at the birth of Jesus Christ. So today we're going to be continuing our journey through the book of Acts. I'm sorry, the book of Luke. And uh, we did Acts for a long time as a church leading up to this. The book of Luke, uh, Luke chapter 2, about the announcement of the birth of Jesus Christ. We've had three babies born in our church since we've started, and there's been a joyful announcement about the birth of each one of those children, because it's always such a special thing to have a new baby in your life. And we've got a few more on the way, and not too long. But this passage this morning is about the special, unusual, amazing announcement of the birth of Jesus Christ. So let's turn together to Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 21. Luke 2, 8 through 21, and I'm going to read this for us. If you would please stand to honor the Lord as we read his word. Luke chapter 2, verse 8. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased." And when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. What a glorious passage this morning. As funny as it is, I can never read this without hearing Linus. Can you, how many of you have heard Linus read this passage many, many times in, the, in all of the, the Peanuts characters? Great passage to be read by Linus, an important passage. Part of it we were singing this morning, glory to God in the highest, an angelic announcement. Angels speaking to us is not a normal thing, but in this very, very unusual time, there was, this is the third angelic announcement that has happened since we've been looking at the Gospel of Luke. And at this point in time, the scene is so unusual. You've got a group of shepherds outside of town in a field watching over their sheep by night. This is your normal nine-to-five shepherd day. And they're just doing their thing. And in the middle of the night, there is this angel of the Lord bursts onto the scene. And it says that he came with glory, as all angels do. A, a bit of heaven comes down with them, and they shine over the area. And the glory of the Lord is a part of what is going on, and fear overtakes them. And so what I want to do is spend a moment talking about this. What is this that, as it says in verse 9, the glory of the Lord shone around them? Always 
When the Lord appears, one of his angels, one of his messengers, or something that he is doing, some part of the light and the glory of heaven appears with them. It says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, the Apostle John writes, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Now certainly this does relate to the, the purity and the holiness of God, but it also means that there is radiant glory, actual light that comes off of him. He is a glorious being. Always, for his time eternal in the past in all writings of people light and darkness is, a, is probably the oldest imagery that's around and light has to do with always what is good and what is right because it's associated from the scriptures with God and his goodness and darkness and evil associated together because people run and hide and do evil things in darkness hoping that God won't see them the imagery comes straight from the scriptures we're told in Revelation 22 5 that when we reach heaven, there will no longer be night. It says, They will need no lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Have you thought about that? That's amazing. That the radiance of the glory of God, physical radiance, will illuminate heaven to such that there will be no night, and it will have the glory of the Lord filling it in such a way that the glorious light that we see a glimpse of with every angelic appearance and some of the other things I'll mention in a moment here will in fact illuminate heaven. The glory and the light of God regularly accompanies his servants and his presence. One of the early examples of this is with Moses in Exodus 33. There was this thing called the tent of meeting where Moses would go to meet with the Lord God and the cloud or the the presence of the Lord would descend there and he would talk with God. And it says, The Lord used to speak with Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friend. But something very unusual would occur. When Moses left from that place, he had to eventually start wearing a veil over his face because there was so much radiant glory, physical radiance coming off of him from being in the presence of the Lord. I believe in a small and lesser way, such a thing still happens with us. How is that? When you are filled with the Spirit and you know you are experiencing the joy of the Lord and it just comes out of you. People that are near to the Lord, there is a sense of great joy about them. And the joy that they have and the smile that's a part of them is not just something that's normal to them. It's something that the Lord has given to them. And the happiness and the joy that they have begins to rub off on people around them because it's a little bit, just a little bit, of the radiance of the glory of God shining through them. So we have Moses. Uh, We also have others. Uh, The Transfiguration. Matthew chapter 17, a huge example with Jesus. It says that when he was on that mountain with the apostles, that his face shone like the sun and his his clothes became white as light. And for a moment there, he was transfigured on that mountain. They get a little glimpse of what the glorified Jesus Christ will be like, shining like white light. At the death of Stephen the martyr, after he has preached to them the gospel, and these people hate him, and they're after him, and they start stoning him. It says that there was a a window open in heaven where he sees the glory of God. In the next chapter after that, when Saul is 
converted, it says that on the way to Damascus, the Lord stopped him in his path with a, what was it? A light of glory from heaven actually blinded him and stopped him in his path and led to his conversion. And we could go on and on and on. Every example of heaven and a glimpse of heaven is also accompanied by the glory of God and light. The opposite of this is the darkness of evil, the dark countenance of those who love and practice evil, the darkness of people trying to hide their evil deeds, and ultimately those that will be judged by God, those that reject the salvation of Jesus, those that hate God, in the end will be judged, and the scriptures say they will be cast into outer darkness. Whereas heaven is a place of beautiful, glorious light, hell will be a place of darkness, opposite of heaven. Well, this occasion, the angel of the Lord appears to these shepherds, and this same glory surrounds him, and they're fearful of it. But this announcement is not a complete surprise to them, because this announcement of the birth of the Son of God is something that had been long awaited and foretold by the prophets in the past. This announcement was predestined and foretold by God. It was God's plan always to send a Messiah, to send a Savior that people might be forgiven of their sins. And we could read many different passages related to the coming of Jesus Christ from the Old Testament. But I'm going to read for you this morning just a section from the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 9, uh, verses 2, 6, and 7. One of the most well-known The people who walked in darkness have seen what? A great light. And those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. On the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David, his... On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. And so it speaks to the coming of the Messiah. It speaks to him shining a great light upon people in bondage and in darkness and needing a Savior. So the angel says in verse 10 that he comes speaking good news. The angel said to them, fear not, for fear is always the initial reaction of those who encounter angels. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. The good news of salvation, which we're going to spend the rest of our time here talking about, is for all people. I want you to hear that. It's for all people from all time periods, from all races, from all cultures, Jesus is not a savior for the West. By the way, the gospel of Jesus Christ started in the Middle East, not in the West. And through its period of time has has swept through Europe, through the West, and now is most at work in bringing people to salvation in the Far East and in Africa. He is a savior for the whole world. Every other deity that people worship is a lesser, something that's for that culture or for that time or for that place. But Jesus is the Savior of the whole world. It is good news. But I want to ask you this morning, what does it mean to be saved? It's good news that this angel proclaims that the Savior has been born. But what does it mean to be saved? 
thinking about this the other day. I think that one of the greatest saving or rescue stories from our modern time is the story of the boys rescued from the Thailand, I'm probably pronouncing this wrong, but the Tham Lung Cave. I don't know if you know this story, but it's a shocking story. It's a group of boys in July 2018. It was 12 of them plus their coach. And they decided to go for a hike in their area of Thailand. And it was a cave system that they had hiked in often. They would go for many kilometers back in this cave uh, exploring what was there, and they knew it. It was not a big deal. They didn't take any supplies with them because it was something that they did on a regular basis. But they got three kilometers back in this cave, and an early monsoon rain hit. And the monsoon rain began to flood the cave, and eventually it flooded it out to where they were no longer able to get out of the cave, and it ushered in an early monsoon, and the whole cave was blocked by water. And so parents, of course, became concerned, not knowing where their children were, and they searched for them, found their bikes and their uh, footprints at the opening of the cave, and this entered into an international rescue because these boys were trapped far far back in this cave at the point that it became known nobody really knew where they were but with no food limited air complete darkness and increasing cold they were absolutely doomed unless someone came to save them they needed a savior so what happened was Thai SEALs, U.S. Navy SEALs, international cave divers, and all kinds of professionals went to work with how to get these boys, how to find these boys, and then how to get them out of this cave. I encourage you to look at it. It's a fascinating story. The idea of diving with scuba tanks in a, such confined space that you can't even keep the tank on your back. You have to drag it behind you in pitch darkness, in freezing cold water to save other people is shocking heroism. In the process of saving these boys, one diver did die. But when they finally found these boys, I can't imagine the, they were trapped for 10 days in that cave for a diver to finally come up out of the water to say, I, I have found you and we're going to rescue you. And they figured out a way of sedating them and getting a, a dive mask. on. These boys, half these boys didn't even know how to swim. And they had to transit so many lengths underwater that they had to use multiple tanks to get them out. It's unbelievable. It's an incredible story of rescue. To be saved is to have someone else come and rescue you from certain death. And if they were not to come, you would perish. That's what it means to be saved. And we need to understand that our condition, our spiritual condition, is like in some ways to those boys. We are doomed without the salvation of Jesus Christ. There is no way that we can work our way into a right relationship with God. If it is not for the forgiveness of Jesus Christ extended to us, we will come under the judgment of God. And so what is Jesus saving us from? Why is this such good news that a Savior has come? Jesus is saving us from the wrath of God the Father. I think sometimes we don't realize that. We speak of Jesus as a Savior and we may not even grasp what we're being saved from. God the Father is just. He is perfectly holy and he is perfectly just meaning that there will be no sin and wickedness in heaven. Heaven is a perfect place. If it were a corrupt place, it would be like the world that we live in now. But God will not allow wickedness into his presence, and he will not overlook wickedness. 
And we understand this in our own hearts because we are created in the image of God. And so we grasp a small part of this. About two years ago, in uh, early 2018, Nicholas Cruz went into Stoneman Douglas High School and shot 34 people, killing 17 of them. And everybody knew it was him. There's no question about it that, it was, that he was the shooter. And he will go to trial early next year. Uh, his trial will finally be up. If he walked into the courtroom early next year and the judge on the first day said, I, you know, I, I am I'm feeling very merciful today and I'm a very kind person, so I'm going to forgive you. All right, we're adjourned. Thank you very much. There would be riots in the streets because of what? Because it's unjust. This is, this is, this is horrible. This can't happen. No justice has been done here. We understand that with this particular act. It's obvious that there must be some justice here. What is the same for us? We have all in our sin sinned against the Lord. And justice demands that there be a price for that. The wages of sin is death. But Jesus, but God the Father in his love sent Jesus to us. Because though he is just, he is also perfectly loving. And his love is incomprehensible and beyond anything that you and I can imagine. And in his great love for us, he devised a plan of salvation. A perfect plan that would both meet the justice of God and show the overwhelming love and mercy of God at the same time. And so Jesus comes to us as a savior, not to overlook our sins, but to take the penalty of our sins in his own body that we might be forgiven. And this is good, good news. Um, what is Jesus saving us to? What is he saving us to? What happens when we confess our sins and we are forgiven our sins by Jesus Christ? The scriptures tell us that we become a new person. There is real change in our life. Real change occurs. The soul is what animates our entire person. I don't know if you know that or not, but you have a soul. I love talking to people about that. Some people don't think about that. There is more to you than just what you physically are, and that is your soul. And when your soul is separated from God and weighed down by guilt and under, uh, under condemnation, it changes everything about your life. But when you come to salvation and you confess your sins and you are forgiven of your sins and the weight of guilt is removed from your soul and you have the opportunity to pray and have fellowship with God and the Holy Spirit comes and resides in your heart, Everything is different about your life. It changes your entire life. So we are not just saved to not die, but like those boys brought out of that cave, they're given an opportunity for an entire new life that they did not have that was going to be cut short. Life that you did not know was possible becomes real in the Lord. We are justified before God, so we have peace with God. We're no longer under the condemnation of God. We are adopted into the kingdom of God, called sons and daughters, and given all the privileges of what it means to be welcomed into a family. We are freed from the bondage of sin and addiction. We no longer have to do things that are evil because we have been set free from those things and given strength to live a different life. We are giving the indwelling Holy Spirit of God, which changes everything. And by the Spirit of God, we begin to bear new and different fruit in our life. Our life is no longer known for the overflow of anger and lust and selfishness, but instead we're known as people that are kind and merciful and gentle and self-controlled and long-suffering. 
the hope of eternal life and the fellowship of the church. This is good news. This is great news. This is the best news that anyone can have because any other news does not touch the soul. It does not change the heart. It does not change what is really going on with you at the deepest level. When we come to Jesus Christ and we understand what he has done for us and we believe in him and we confess our sins to him, everything about our life is made new. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. I ask you what you believe about Jesus. I don't know where you stand with Jesus this morning. We're going to come back to it, but you must decide. You must decide. Well, the last shall be first is another part of this passage. In verse 11, it says, For unto you this day is born uh, in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord, and this will be a sign to you that you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. The humility of the birth of Jesus Christ we talked about a week ago. Here, we're looking at, at the announcement of the birth of Jesus Christ to a group of shepherds, to a group of people who, by the world's standards, are completely insignificant. These people, nobody knows their names. Nobody is accounting for these guys. No one would expect that Almighty God would announce the birth of his son to these men. But we should never despise or look down on a hardworking, laboring person and thinking that God cannot speak to them where they are. I want to be clear that God so often speaks not to people that are in a, a place of private devotion, but people that are working, laboring people. Uh, we can go back to Moses again. We looked at Moses earlier. God favored this man greatly. But when did God first come to Moses and speak to him from a burning bush? It was not in a tent of meeting. It was not in a place of worship. It was while he was shepherding sheep out on the side of a hill. And God comes to him while he is working. Gideon, while he was threshing wheat on a floor and working, God comes to him and calls for him to go and deliver his people. Elisha, while he's plowing a field, working oxen, Elijah comes to him and calls him to ministry. David, when he's called an anointed king of Israel, what is he doing? He's out in the field working, shepherding sheep, doing his job, living his life, working. Peter, Andrew, James, John, when they're called to be disciples and followers of Jesus, what are they doing? They're fish, they, weren't, they weren't fishing, they were, they were fishing, fishing with, fishing with nets, fishing, working, just doing what they've been called to do, working, laboring. Lydia believes in the gospel through Paul as a merchant while she is working. Do not despise the work that God has given you or do not think that God cannot come or will not come and visit you in special ways while you do the work that he has given to you. In Luke 13, 30, the disciples asked, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Some who are last will be first and some who are first will be last is the way that that passage ends. The idea that God's economy or viewing things is so radically different than the way that we view things. Consistently in the ministry of Jesus, those who are in the first place of the world are in the last place of his ministry. The poor and the sick and those who are of no worldly position are often chosen by God for a special blessing because they more often gladly receive that blessing because they know they are in need of it. In James 2, 
James writes, listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? He has promised something special to those that are poor because the possessions of the world and the titles of the world and even physical health sometimes makes us feel like we are not in need of what? A savior. It feels like I don't need saving. Everything's good with me. You know, I've got all that I need. I'm healthy. I've got a great job. I've got plenty of money in the bank. Like, why do I need a Savior? And it presents a, a false view that you do not need God because you can cover up the lost condition of your soul with many things that are available in the world. Now, the older we get, the more we have to pile those things on because our conscience keeps rising up and we know that there's something desperately wrong between us and God. But the things of the world can mask it and can lie to us and help us think or cause us to think that we do not need a Savior. Because the ways of Jesus always call for self-denial, for us to give up the things of this world, to seek after him. When it comes to aspects of wealth, those, we are called as Christians to be radically generous towards those that are in need, radically generous towards the support of gospel efforts, and self-denying that we might seek after spiritual things. But the conflict comes that when those who have great wealth are called to follow after the Lord and deny themselves, often what will happen? we will decide to not follow after Jesus in order to preserve those things that we have. And if they come into conflict, we decide to choose the world instead of the Lord Jesus. There are many stories in the scriptures about it. Status is something that has to do directly with this series of stories we're talking about now. When you're called to follow the kingdom of God, and the Lord God will call you in a different direction than what you are currently in. And when we love our position or place and serving Jesus with a full heart is threatened, threatens our position, we will often turn away from the Lord in order to preserve the position or status that we have. So here in front of us, when this announcement of the glorious salvation of Jesus Christ comes to these shepherds, what do they do? Man, they were, this is amazing. This is great news. Let's go find this Savior. And they run into town. They find him. We'll talk about it in a moment. They rejoice over him. They worship this Savior. But what happens when this same news comes to King Herod, the ruler of this area? By the way, Jesus does not tell him directly. Or God does not announce it to him directly. But indirectly, he finds about it through some wise men passing through. He starts to pump information from them. They realize what his motive is. His motive is to try to kill this Savior. And so they leave a different way, and he sends in a crew of executioners to try to kill every young boy in the entire area for the hopes of doing what? Retaining his position. He's concerned that this child that's called a king might unseat his authority. He might lose his position. Now, that's a radical example, but it's a real example of someone being threatened by Jesus and not wanting to rejoice in his kingdom because of what it might do to affect their position. The kingdom of God is not of this world. Jesus clearly stated that to Pilate at his death, and we need to remember that. The kingdom of God is not like what we are used to seeing in this world. We must look beyond that. The world is passing, and in the next life, the economy of the greatest and the least will not be determined by physical wealth or position, but by faith and passionate love for Jesus. 
those who love Jesus in a great and passionate way in this life, but are little known to the world, will be put into a great position and honored in the next life. We must be willing to follow the call of Jesus Christ no matter what the sacrifice or cost. So we've talked this morning about, about God as light, about the goodness of Jesus as our Savior, and lastly, about the idea of the last being first and the first being last and the, the difference of the economy of Jesus Christ. But let's finish with this. Let's finish with looking at how these characters respond to this message from the angel. Let's look at verse 19. Mary has such an interesting reaction. Verse 19 says that Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. I like that, I like that statement. I can only imagine how encouraging it was for these shepherds to burst through the door. Because she saw the angel Gabriel and heard from him, and Joseph had this dream. But then there was nine months of silence. And they ended up with the birth of the Messiah in a barn with animals. Okay, I don't care who you are, that is very odd and very difficult to deal with. And if you're in that situation, you're thinking, this is not at all how I envision this to work out. And then in the midst of this, right after the baby is born, this crew of shepherds come bursting through the door. And what do they say? We just heard a chorus of angels on a hill that told us to come and look for you. And I can only imagine like the back and forth storytelling of, well, we saw this and we saw that. And, and together they confirm, no, the, the Lord is still at work. And he is unfolding his perfect plan in a way that we could not imagine. But it is the will of the Lord. And they rejoice there together and the shepherds. Uh, worship the baby Jesus, and then they go out, and it says they begin to tell others, and people wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary pondered these things in her heart. What it means is that she did not fully understand what was going on, and I tell you that we never fully understand anything of God. Do you realize that? God is infinite. We are finite. He gives us truth about himself, and each of these things are true, but we do not fully understand the end of them, but we believe them by faith along the way. And so Mary pondered these things. She believed them and she acted on them, but treasured them in her heart. And I encourage you in the same way to treasure the things that God does in your life along the way. Though you may not understand all of what is going on, be thankful for the moments where it is very clear that God is working in your life and the salvation that he is working out in your soul is very clear to you. Treasure those things as did Mary and believe. The shepherds, it says in verse 20, returned glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen and had been told to them and they went out. And told others. So first they believed. They did not close their hearts in skepticism, but they believed. And then they went and searched for what had been told them. And then they went out and told others as they worshipped. They were the first to proclaim the good news that the Messiah has been born. It's the same good news that I proclaim to you today. It's the same good news I hope that you will proclaim to your neighbors and to your friends and to your relatives that the Messiah has come, one who can forgive your sins and make you new. He lives and his salvation is open to you. And lastly in verse 21 is the, is the response of Joseph. His name is not given here, but it says in verse 21 that at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised and was, as according to the Jewish custom, he was called Jesus. What is that? That's an act of obedience. Because the angel in the vision had told Joseph, you shall name him Jesus. 
And just like uh, Gabriel told Zechariah uh, that John the Baptist was to be named John, when he obeyed, his discipline was removed, as we've spoken about in past weeks. Joseph obeyed, and he named him Jesus and was steadily going down the line, obeying with what they had in front of them, with what they had been given. We're going to act, and we're going to keep doing what God has called us to do as this story unfolds. It's a beautiful story, a story of angelic glory, a story of unknown people, a story of obedience, a story of worship, but it's a story that directly relates to you and I. For the Savior of the world is our Savior as well. And so I encourage you this morning, what do you believe about Jesus, the Savior of the world? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray for us this morning. May we rejoice in you, you our Savior. May we be willing to sacrifice all things for you. May, may no thing in this world get in the way of our fellowship and love for you. We thank you for how you have revealed yourself to us in your word. And I pray that you would give us faith to believe these things, that we might put our hope and our trust in Jesus Christ, and that we might confess our sins to you, that through the filling of your spirit, that we might live a new life, that joy would take the place of sorrow, and happiness, the place of condemnation, peace with God, uh, reign in our lives. I pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.